following message was recorded at Antioch Presbyterian Church, an historic and charter congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, ministering to upstate South Carolina since 1843. Come and visit us at the crossroads of Greenville and Spartanburg counties. Experience our past and be a part of our future. For more information, visit AntiochPCA.com. There are certain things that just seem to go together. Um, Think of... One of my favorite combinations, baseball and apple pie. It's a very American combination. Other things that seem to go together too, blue skies and sunshine, as we enjoyed this afternoon, though not this morning, or perhaps um, dark thunderclouds and rain, which we frequently experience here in the upstate. Well, in Matthew chapter 16 and 17 forward, more and more Jesus is showing his disciples Two things that go together, perhaps even more fittingly than baseball and apple pie, but one combination that they would not have expected, indeed one that takes them by surprise. It seems rather unlikely on the face of it, and that is suffering and glory. Suffering and glory. Again and again, Jesus is is reiterating to them that he is the Son of Man, the one who will come to judge the nations. He possesses the glory of God in his very person, as we see in this passage. And he is going to continue working glorious miracles, as he will in passages to come. But now, as he's making these revelations, as he's confirming his disciples' suspicions that indeed he is the Christ, the Messiah, as he's doing these things, he's now setting Right alongside of these glorious statements and works and manifestations, reminders that he has come to die, that he is going to Jerusalem to suffer and even to be crucified, to be put to death by wicked men. What a surprising combination this is. Well, nowhere, I think, is it more convincing to the disciples, at least the three that witness it, than right here in Matthew chapter 17 in the account of the transfiguration. And what I want to show you from these 13 verses, which originally I was going to divide up into the first eight or nine and then the last three, but I I realized, no, they go together. There's no division here. What I want to show you from these 13 verses is something very simple, but something very profound and Profoundly Christian. The glory of God is revealed in Christ Jesus, Lord, who suffered for our salvation. The glory of God, our Lord, who suffered for our salvation. We'll unpack this under two headings. It seems to fall rather naturally in the text, which all goes together in this passage. In the first eight verses, the glory of God revealed in Christ in the account of the transfiguration itself. And then in the aftermath, verses 9 through 13, this teaching of Christ through a dialogue with his disciples that Jesus, our Lord, is he who suffered for our salvation. So the glory of God revealed in Christ And then Jesus, our Lord, who suffered for our salvation. First, the glory of God revealed in Christ in these first eight verses, recounting for us the transfiguration. We'll look at the transfiguration itself, God's purpose, which is really made clear in his statement to Peter in that strange back and forth there. And then Christ's ministry in the last two verses of this incident. So first, look at the first three. 
is in transfiguration. Notice here in verses 1 to 3 that we're given a, a number of, of rather specific details, aren't we? We're told uh, something about the timing, the when of this event. We're told the where. We're told the with whom, who's present, and then what is going on, what has happened. First, the when. Each of these details is significant for us to understand what it is that's being communicated to the disciples. And the when, we're told by Matthew six days later, after his last statement, his, uh, his teaching on discipleship, six days after that, he then takes three of his disciples up onto the mountaintop. If you looked at Luke's gospel, I do need to address this. Luke says eight days later. How do we account for the, the, um, the discrepancy? Well, Matthew and Mark, in relating the timing, are talking about the six days between Christ's saying, his teaching, and then the transfiguration event itself when they're up on the mountaintop. Luke is talking about the whole period of time, which includes those two days. Six plus two is eight. Tension resolved. Submit ourselves to Scripture. Don't seek to find problems where they don't exist. But why is it, then, that Matthew would say six if Luke, being the more precise historian, says eight, including those two days? Matthew actually has a purpose here. Somebody else spent six days of preparation before going up onto a mountaintop to meet with God, to behold the glory of God. That person was Moses in Exodus chapter 24. In fact, the setting, the where, uh, strengthens this sense that Jesus is reenacting something in the life and ministry of Moses, even as the, 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 the true and greater Moses, if you will. This is on a mountain by themselves, on a mountaintop in a private setting. Uh, Jesus taking three of his disciples with him, much as Moses brought Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu with him for that meeting in Exodus 24. You can look at that in verse 16 of Exodus 24. So the when and the where seem to be paralleling here the ministry of Moses. And that makes sense. Because Matthew in his gospel is presenting Jesus as the son of David and David's Lord, but also as the second Moses leading forth a second exodus, a new exodus, if you will, of reestablishing a spiritual Israel in his work of reformation. But something needs to be said about the three that go with Jesus, about Peter, James, and John, his brother. These are the three that are frequently with him in special incidents in his ministry that require certifying witnesses. And Deuteronomy 17, verse 6 says that an account will be certified, it will be confirmed on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And so Jesus, uh, knowing in full well that these gospel accounts would be produced by these men and by their followers, is bringing them along so that they can witness these significant moments in his earthly ministry. It's kind of like something that has happened quite a few times the last few months here at Antioch, blessedly so, and that is we've had baptisms. And whenever we have a baptism, I produce a baptismal certificate, which is then signed by, you guessed it, three witnesses, the, the officiant and then two witnesses besides, who can certify that indeed this baptism took place at this place at this time. Well, Peter, James, and John can function that way. And in fact, they do. And they're reporting to uh, the other disciples later on after Christ's resurrection and to the other evangelists, Mark perhaps, and Luke himself, uh, as to what exactly took place here with a sure testimony. So what took place here? 
Look at verse 2 with me. He was transfigured, metamorphosed before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. There are two things that happen in the transfiguration that I want you to notice. In the first, we have a revelation, and then we have a consultation. A revelation and a consultation. The revelation here is of Christ's divine nature, accommodated to the capacity of his disciples, that they can behold it and be drawn to it, but not be overwhelmed by it. It's described in these terms, like the sun and white as light, describing power and purity of Christ's divine essence, which he shares fully with the Father. What, what this revelation reveals, what the transfiguration reveals to the disciples and to us is Christ's inherent purity and his power. Notice, he doesn't reflect the light of the sun. He shines it off of him. It's coming from within him. Moses, when he went up on the mountain, he somehow uh, gets some of God's glory and it's, it's reflecting off of him for a period of time. So he has to veil himself lest he, he frighten the, the congregation of Israel. But for Jesus, he doesn't borrow glory. He doesn't reflect glory. No, the glory is all his. It's that which Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. He set aside for a time that of which he emptied himself the outward manifestation of this glory, mind you, not the essence of it, as he took to himself a human nature as a veil, while here on this mountaintop, Jesus' three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, behold a foretaste of that which awaits each and every one of us in heaven, that vision glorious of God the Son in Jesus Christ. That's what they see, this one greater than Moses, but consulting with Moses. That's the second part, a very important detail here in verse 3. Behold, our attention is arrested by that little word behold several times in this passage. Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. There are five reasons that John Chrysostom gives for this consultation on the mountaintop, and I think they're very helpful and insightful. In the first place, this little meeting between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah vindicates what Peter just testified about who Jesus is, that he is Christ, the Son of the living God, because he's obviously not Elijah. Elijah's there with him. He can't be both Elijah and Elijah with him, though many of the multitudes in Israel thought he was just a reincarnation or resurrected version returning Elijah. So in the first place, this meeting vindicates what Peter has already just testified of Jesus. But it also proves in the second place that Jesus is not a blasphemer, something else that the multitudes, particularly the scribes and the Pharisees, will accuse him of being because one who is a blasphemer would not enter into consultation with Moses, the representative of the law, and with Elijah, the representative of of the prophets, those who for devotion and for zeal would have nothing to do with a rank, unrepentant blasphemer. In the third place, this consultation manifests 
Jesus' power over the living and the dead. Remember, Elijah's death is not recorded for us in Scripture. Moses' death is. And Chrysostom brings this out. I think it's a bit speculative, but isn't it true that Christ our Savior, as he, as he meets with Moses and Elijah, communicates something to us about his interest and rule and supremacy over the living and the dead as the Son of Man? In the fourth place, and Luke in particular will bring this out in his gospel, this meeting, this consultation shows the glory of the cross that they go together, Christ's suffering and humiliation together with his exaltation and manifestation of glory because that's the subject of their consultation. Matthew doesn't record that for us, but Luke does. In Luke 9, verse 31, we're told that what are they talking about? They're talking about what he must do in Jerusalem, his coming departure or exodus. That is his death and then ultimately his resurrection. In the fifth and final place, and this is speaking to the effect it has on his disciples, and it makes perfect sense in Matthew's gospel. This consultation and transfiguration strengthens the disciples in the course to which Christ has just called them in Matthew 16, verses 24 to 28 when he sets before them the costliness of their discipleship, that following him is indeed bearing a cross, suffering grievously, torments body and soul as you come into conflict, direct confrontation with the sin within you and the sin around you in the world. They need strength for this, don't they? And so seeing Jesus in this glorified state with um, Moses and with Elijah, coming from heaven to visit with him would strengthen the faith of the disciples. Now, the greatest of these five reasons is, or actually are, the two greatest ones, are Christ's accord with the law and the prophets in his earthly ministry, that he's in full agreement with the Old Testament scriptures, the Bible that the disciples knew, and the strengthening of the disciples, the effect this would have on them for their cross-bearing in following after him. So what do we do with this? With this account of the transfiguration of our Lord? We should glory in him. Behold your Savior, Lord, and magnify his name. This is a revelation of Christ's glory. It calls for praise and adoration. But how? Well, that's where the nature of this revelation really comes into play. We glory in Jesus by searching the Scriptures, the Old and the New Testaments, and recognizing how they, law and prophets and everything else, proclaim and manifest and publish His supremacy and superiority. They speak of Him. I said this in the Sunday school class today as we were going through and, and closing up our membership class. We are committed at Antioch to the whole counsel of God, the whole counsel of the whole Christ for the whole man, aren't we? And so we bring to you, as Dr. Pipe is preaching through Job and I'm preaching through Matthew, it's just one example of this, we bring to you treasures old and new. We come teaching and preaching the Old and New Testaments. We don't divorce them one from another. And so too, in your own private study and devotion, Search the scriptures and search for Christ therein, recognizing that indeed he has an interest here. And glory in what you find of Jesus Christ. 
as you do so with the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1, recognize Christ's superiority over these figures, over Moses and Elijah and all the prophets. Four, Christ's intercession prevails more mightily than that of Moses. Christ's reformation and work thereof in Matthew's gospel is more full and lasting than that of Elijah in his earthly ministry. And unlike Moses, as I've already said, Christ bears in himself, in his own native nature, if we can put it that way, purity and power, not a borrowed glory. So why, therefore, should we glorify in Jesus Christ? Should we magnify his name? Because you and I, we need this strengthening that comes through searching the scriptures mining the depths of God's word and coming back up with truth and doctrine about Jesus Christ. We need this strengthening vision of our Lord and our Savior. It's only in recognizing the glory of Christ and getting that foretaste of things to come as we have that recognition, as we see what the disciples are seeing here that we can then carry on through our toils and our temptations, our pain and our strife and our earthly sojourn and our pilgrimage, this side of heaven. But beyond any benefit to ourselves, it really is all about him. It really is. Law and prophets, they're all about him. And it's God's purposes uh, his purpose in our lives that we would be brought into full alignment with the teaching of this one about whom the whole Scripture speaks, this Christ, the Son of the living God. And so it's to God's purposes we turn now in verses 4 to 6. And the occasion for this revelation of what it is God wants the disciples to do with this transfiguration experience, the occasion of it is Once again, Peter opening up his big mouth, which has been the case for several sermons in a row now. Notice what Peter says. He said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. So far, so good. If you wish, we, it's really we will make, but we or I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Okay, getting a, a bit off track here, Peter. This is a mixed response that Peter gives, and it's so indicative of our devotion, isn't it? Uh, There's something good in what Peter says, but it's mixed in with a lot of foolishness, and that's really what happens here. It's kind of like the response would be, and Peter, I appreciate your heart, man, but this is neither the time nor the place for what you're suggesting, because even a good impulse can be misdirected. Indeed, nothing is sweeter or better, nothing is more good, as Peter says, than to be in the presence of Christ. To behold his glory. This is what is set before us as the great prize of the faithful Christian, and that is to see God as he is in heaven, in his goodness and in his majesty, without any sense of judgment or peril. And there's nothing better than that. We were made to commune with God as our Savior. We were made to glory in his being and in his essence, even as it's accommodated to our feeble human senses. But Peter's proposal is foolish and obstructive. It's getting in the way again of Christ's mission. Particularly for its foolishness, God corrects it. 
And this ties in again to Matthew's purpose in his gospel to bring the wisdom of Christ to bear in the life of Christian discipleship. On our own, we stumble into foolish proposals, but God corrects them by his word. And that's what we see what happening here in verse 5. While he was still speaking, we can imagine him stammering, getting this out, this you know, half-baked idea, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said and spoke, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Notice not just what God says, but how he says it, how he reveals his purpose to these disciples. This bright cloud of his gracious revelation is in fact obscuring the glorious vision of Christ in order to bring the attention of the disciples to what? That which is spoken in and by his word. He's arresting their attention that they would then hear his voice as he gives true instruction to them. They are to hear what God says. Isn't, isn't this the, the case even in our preaching here? We don't come up here with a PowerPoint presentation with movies or with pictures or, or little action figures or marionette puppets or something. No, the ministry of God, the ordinances of God are preaching. We declare the word of God. He does authorize uh, the sacraments for the engagement of our senses, but on the whole, we subsist on the instruction delivered to us by spoken word. How will they believe who have not heard, right? And so this lines up exactly with God's ongoing mission in his church and through his church. And so the response of them to this is typical of other uh, divine revelations. When they, in verse 6, they fall face down on the ground and are filled with utter terror, are completely uh, silenced and, and stricken with awe and fear. But we don't want to skip over what it is that's said here in verse 5. This is really the kernel of it. This is the heart of it. What is God's purpose here? His purpose is that the disciples would hear and heed not only what is said in the cloud, but hear and heed the fully wise teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, listen to him. Who is he? My beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus has already laid out his mission to them. He's already told them, I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer at the hands of I must suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the scribes. I must be crucified. I must be raised again from the dead. And if Peter got his way, he'd get in the way of Christ's mission. The Father is saying, listen to him. Heed his words. Don't be a stumbling block. Why? Because the man Jesus Christ is very God of very God. He is beloved Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, who is about the business of his Father, which is willingly laying down his life, paying the penalty for the sins of many, that he might present to his Father his elect people bought by his blood shed on the cross. That is, 
He is about the business of accomplishing redemption on our behalf to the glory of God his Father. And in this, God's justice is satisfied. In this, the Father says, I am well pleased. The life of faith, the life which we are called to live, because we're not called to lay down our lives, to die for the sins of many. Jesus did that. We're called to live the life of faith and whatever that entails. The life of faith is the life of resting secure in and upon Christ Jesus, over whom God pronounced, in him I am well pleased. We recognize Jesus' voice speaking to us in his word, and we joyfully heed it. We eagerly take hold of it, rendering obedience born of sincere and, and true, lasting trust in his good teaching and in who he is, for he has accomplished redemption. To Christ Jesus, the Lord of glory, who laid aside that outward show of his deity, veiling it in humble flesh, you are called today to come and listen, hear him and heed his voice. Believe upon him. That involves turning from your own misguided and foolish counsels, like building tents on a mountaintop. Turning from your half-baked schemes of self-salvation, of getting the good by your own power and invention, and trusting in the salvation which he has won at the price of his blood shed on the cross. The Father says, listen to him. Indeed, he is the true and better Moses, prophesied in Deuteronomy 18, whom the congregation of Israel is to hear and to heed. Christ's ministry is then exemplified to his disciples here after they fall on the ground full of terror and awe. And look at verse 7. And Jesus came to them, and he touched them and said, Get up. Do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone, Moses and Elijah having departed. When good men are laid low in proper fear, when they're stricken with awe at the revelation of God and the demands of God at his voice, Christ comes pathetically as a loving Savior, no less glorious than he was before, even if now it's hidden again, but he comes into contact with them for consolation. Isn't that what he says? He says, do not be afraid. Get up, arise, look. Don't be filled with fear. His touch, his coming into contact with our nature, what a comfort that is. He took to himself human flesh. He didn't despise that which he took. To himself. He embraced it. He loved it. That's how he shows his love for sinners. He identifies fully with them. He even underwent the waters of baptism. He didn't need to be purified. He committed no sins. He comes into touch, contact with lepers and with all manner of defiled types. And, and rather than, than recoiling from them like the scribes and their Pharisees, he instead embraces them. And he does the same here for his disciples, and he speaks tenderly, lovingly, arise, get up, cast off fear of death, let's go. I'm still with you. 
What a glorious Savior we serve. What a loving Savior that we claim as our own. Well, moving into these last few verses just briefly, we see that not only the glory of God revealed in Christ in the transfiguration account, but we see as well how this is so tightly fitted to the reality that Jesus our Lord is he who suffered for our salvation. Jesus our Lord suffered for our salvation, and that is, that is as tied together with his glory as even more so than baseball and apple pie, as I mentioned. Christ has his purposes in this account as well. Look at verse 9. As they're coming down the mountain, or going, coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them. He gives them direction. He gives them an instruction here. What do you do with this? You know they're thinking, what in the world do we do with this experience? He says, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. It's interesting he uses the word vision because that is really appropriately speaking of a vision of God. I mean, he knows that he is God. There's no confusion here, and he wants them to know that too. But he says, don't tell anybody until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Again, he's reprising his mission. They've just seen his glory. Um, They see him talking to Moses and Elijah. They're coming down now, and he's reminding them, remember, I'm supposed to go to the dead. I'm supposed to die. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. So he reprises his mission, but he does so referring to himself again as the Son of Man, that glorious title of judgment and power. He will die and rise again. Nothing is sacrificed. And in this purpose that he gives to his disciples, not only does he reprise his mission, but he gives his plan of revelation. There will come a time when it will be fitting and appropriate for the disciples to speak about what they've seen, to talk of the glory of Christ, which has been revealed to them, which they got a foretaste of on the mountaintop. Indeed, Peter talks about it in his letters. The vision, what they've seen, is to be published, but not until he has accomplished redemption. And he has his purposes for that. But this raises a question then, which really explains what in the world is going on in verses 10 to 13. It's a question stemming from an objection of the scribes regarding the coming of the Messiah, of the Christ. And this question now that people's put to Jesus. And before we get there, just think about how amazing this is. They've just seen Christ in his glory And now they're like, oh yeah, that's right. He says he's going to die. And they get preoccupied with the death. I mean, it's like they never really, um, they never really even acknowledge that he's talking about coming back from the dead. They just fixate on this problem they have. How in the world are you going to die? You're the Messiah. You're supposed to cast out the Romans and set up the Davidic kingdom and then take over the world. What are you talking about dying? And they get fixated on this. So they ask this question. And here we see the disciples' perplexity. They ask him, why then do the scribes say, and really this is referring to Malachi 4 verse 5, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? That is, if Elijah was to come and restore all things, as it says in Malachi, then how is it that the Christ suffers and dies. This doesn't seem to make any sense. And it's interesting that they say the scribes say, not the scriptures say, because they're really drawing from the scribes' teaching that 
because Elijah comes first and restores all things, therefore that Christ will not suffer and die. But the scriptures don't say that. The scriptures are very clear in Isaiah's prophecy and elsewhere that God sends his servant to suffer, to die, to pay the penalty for the sins of the people. Jesus answers him in verse 11. He answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. That is, the prophecy is true in its statement. It's not been corrupted. That is the case. But, and now he's going to correct the scribes, and they're saying, I say to you, and this is an introduction of a teaching of correction, of a reformation of their understanding. I say to you that Elijah already came. Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. What he's saying here is that the forerunner, that is, the Elijah figure, was not going to prevent the suffering servant from carrying out his mission. He's not going to prevent the death of the Messiah, but rather was going to foreshadow it. And so now he says this prophecy, this prediction of Elijah's second coming, of him coming again, is fulfilled in John the Baptist, which the disciples get now as Jesus teaches them and shapes their understanding. And as he's doing so, he's saying this prophesied forerunner, this one who foreshadows the death which will be suffered by the Messiah, by the Christ, also foreshadows your suffering, your tribulation as disciples. As I take up my cross, you will take up your cross and follow me in this parade. And the disciples now in verse 13 finally understand. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. There are a few conclusions to take from this little vignette, wedding together the account, the prediction of Christ's suffering, to the account of his transfiguration and of his glory. In the first place, as Westminster Larger Catechism 160 says, whenever we hear the word preached, whenever we're under ordinances of God, we are to uh, really wrestle with them, to grapple with them. In Larger Catechism 160 specifically, and speaking, um, you might think of the Berean church and their diligence in this very activity, whenever uh, we hear the word preached, we are to examine what we hear by the Scriptures. So that's what the disciples are doing. They give us an approved example of that here, but in full submission to Christ teaching them. It's Christ's Word that corrects the, the misunderstandings, the, the twisting of the truth by the scribes and the Pharisees. Another doctrine to pull out of this passage, which we shouldn't miss, is notice what he says. They did to him, speaking of Elijah, whatever they wished. And yet we know that what happened was by the foreordained decree of God in eternity past. And indeed, God's uh, plan of redemption, his foreordaining whatsoever comes to pass, establishes the freedom even of wicked men to pursue their wickedness. And so the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 9, paragraph 1, proof text for the, the freedom and the liberty of wicked men to pursue their wicked schemes. And then in chapter 3, paragraph 1, it uses this same passage as a proof text for the suffering of Christ being foreordained by God for the working of redemption, the working out of God's purposes in the world. 
But the main point of this passage, which I sought to bring to you, is a correction of the disciples' misunderstanding of You see, we are too prone to welcome the crown and to forget the cross. We want the crown. We want the glory. Without the cross, the suffering, the pain, the trouble of the Christian life. Look at Peter. He wanted the good thing, and that's good. But he wanted it without the suffering, the costly following and pursuit of Christ, which Jesus had just set before him. How tragic would it have been for the cause of, of God's glory and of humanity in the world if Peter's wish had been granted if he had been permitted with James and John to erect three little tents for the king of glory and Moses and Elijah so they could hang out on this maybe 30-square-foot section of some nameless mountain in Palestine, and that's where the kingdom would be realized and restricted. How much more glorious is God's purposes? How much more glorious is the progress of the kingdom that we have today that the whole earth is enveloped in the bright glory of God. Let's not get in the way of God's purposes because we fear the cross. There's no crown without the cross. They go together. They go hand in hand to glory, you might say. So what I've sought to show you this evening from this text is just this. The glory of God is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord who suffered for our salvation. It's one unified truth. The glory of God is revealed in Christ. And Jesus our Lord suffered for our salvation. Perseverance in discipleship and in the Christian life consists in this, brothers and sisters. A settled conviction. That through our suffering, through our tribulation, awaits a glorious revelation of God that will bring us so much joy, to which we will say, this is good. It is good for us to be here. It is very good. You do all things well. That awaits us. But there's no way to it except through suffering. And so persevere, beloved, through the hardship, through the pain, through the medical setbacks, through the opposition of the world, the persecutions of the evil one, the temptations of the flesh, persist, persevere, look to Christ, trusting that the foretaste received by the disciples recorded for us here is indeed a foretaste of things to come, reserved in heaven for you by he who went before us. Glory follows your suffering. Let us pray. O oh Lord, our God in heaven, we bless your name and we thank you for this message that Christ has given to his disciples, manifested to them in his very person, declared to them by his sympathetic, tender speech, and made known to them by the inward testimony of the Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would convince us of this, that glory follows suffering, and that you would grant to us a renewal of hard obedience to God our Father in heaven, 
that you would grant to us repentance, even daily repentance of sins committed and temptations that are so alluring to us. Lord, we pray that you would protect us from the schemes of the evil one who wishes to cloud our vision, not so that we can hear your voice, but so that we would fall into despondency and melancholy and depression and sin. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in our thoughts of Christ Jesus, that you would be glorified in our deeds of well-doing, and that you would be glorified in our speech one with another as we call one another to be encouraged in Christ and to be faithful to him even unto death. Lord, we pray now with humble reliance upon your spirit, accept us as your people. We now consecrate ourselves. We set ourselves apart and dedicate ourselves to your service this week as we go forth from this place. We pray that we would carry Christ with us, that we would cherish his word in our hearts, that we would even examine what we've heard by the scriptures, even as your disciples have done and as those who've gone before us. And receive from us, Lord, a modest portion of that which you have given so generously to us as we dedicate ourselves and our material wealth and possessions and certainly our hearts to Christ, our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Antioch Presbyterian Church. For more information about Antioch, visit us at our website at antiochpca.com.